as we turn our minds and attention to Scripture this morning, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Some people care immensely about a school or a team being honored. Living worthy of that logo on the middle of the grass. But we who have been saved by Jesus Christ must care immensely more about the gospel being honored. About living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so that's why Paul turns his instructions in Philippians 1, verse 27, to a church he had planted about 10, year, 10, 10, 10 years previously in the city of Philippi in ancient Greece. He turns his attention, uh, after telling them about how his affairs as he was in prison, waiting uh, to have a sentence be for Nero for his preaching the gospel, but he writes to this Philippian church concerned about some of what they were going through, that they were not really living in a way worthy of the gospel. Now, he is not harsh in this letter. He's not overly criticizing them. The church was full of good fruit, but he is concerned. And so Philippians 1, 27 through 30, we've already seen that in that section there, that the Apostle Paul calls the Philippians to live in a way that's unified, Unified as they face a hostile world, a world hostile to the gospel. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, Paul turns his attention not just to their unity before a hostile world who's opposed to the gospel, but their unity within the church. And we looked at verses 1 and 2 of that last week, and this week we'll focus on 3 and 4, but we'll also work up to verse 5. So I'm going to read from Philippians 1 verse 27 to 2 verse 11. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you. I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Last week, as we kind of focus at, uh, turned our focus to unity within the church in chapter 2, verse 1, we looked at the base of Paul's 
appeal, really the context that he gives for their unity. And Paul describes the blessings that they're given in Christ in four ways. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of God's love to us, the comfort we have from God's love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, our participation in God's Spirit, the way in which God communicates his grace to us through the Holy Spirit, uh, we cry out, Abba, Father, if we know him. If any affection and sympathy, and what Paul says, if any, he's not saying there, if and there's a chance that there may not be. He's almost saying since, but, but it, it's, it's more than saying these things exist. He's saying, you've all experienced these. You know these things. You've been encouraged by Christ. You've been comforted by his love. You are participating in God's spirit. You have connection with the son through the spirit. You have known God's affection and compassion. So because of all those things, and so that's the background that he gives, the context for this called unity. We see that called unity in verse two. And this is what he calls them to. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Mind there is not just thinking. It's our intention, our, our purpose. It's, it, it, it's, it's the direction of our will after we are decided That same word means the same. It's identical. Have the identical mind, the identical way of thinking. And of course, as God makes us, uh, uh, as God makes us all different people, as he makes us diverse people, that could be interesting to think about. What does it mean to have the same thinking? And we talked last week how that is really as we conform our thinking to what God's word says. And as all of us are conforming to what Scripture says, what it reveals about God and the commands that he gives to us, we all become one. We have the same thinking. He also calls us to maintain the same love, an identical love. We talked about how that can be kind of a unique thing to think about as clearly each of us knows some of us here better than others. We don't know all each other in identically the same way. So what does it mean to have an identical love, a same love? And it means that in our commitment, we are committed to one another with an identical love. That our commitment to each other is, is, is as strong as it is to anyone else here. That we have the same love. And that same love is reciprocated back to us. It's a Christ-like love who doesn't pick and choose and say, well, I love you, but I love you more. Now, we know that Christ paid special attention to his disciples. And even then among his disciples, he had those he was particularly close to. But as far as his commitment, it was to all. He had the same love. So it says, be of the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit. And that talks some there about our emotional engagement, that we are harmonious, that we are united together, that when one of us mourns, we all mourn. When one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. We are all uh, in this together, sharing one another's burdens. We have one heartbeat, one pulse. And then Paul finishes up what that call is as intent and one purpose. And that really is bringing us back to, and, and he begins that verse 2 with being of the same mind. And here he goes back to being of one mind. Being of one mind. And again, that is centered around what God's word calls us to. So we talked last week about how God's glory is tied to the unity of the church. That that is what demonstrates how good of a Lord we have. The value of Jesus Christ as we all are unified together, obeying him together, loving as he tells us to. It shows that he's a good king who's worthy to be followed. 
Well, in verses 3 and 4, Paul really transitions in verse 5 too. We'll, we'll hopefully get to verse 5. Uh, Paul instructs us how we're to be cultivating this unity within the body of Christ. And really it's about individuals making choices and Paul's going to show what those choices are. Verses 3 and 4 begin with a, 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 a couple of parallel statements. And you'll see in your notes, it's really simple notes this time. Uh, Paul has a what not to do and then a what to do. And then another what not to do and then another what to do. And he finishes off with, 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 with a command in, in verse 5. So let's first look at what Paul tells us not to do. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. We see that in verse 3. If you have a ESV Bible, that selfishness is translated as selfish ambition. The word that Paul uses here uh, 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 originated to describe a day laborer, someone who works for that day's wages, who, has, who naturally doesn't have an allegiance to his employer. He's just working for that day. And it kind of gained a negative connotation over time. Someone who's just out for themselves, doing what's best for themselves. And there's where the idea of selfishness. The ESV translates it, as I said, a selfish ambition. And that brings out another aspect of this word. The word was also used in ancient literature for the selfish pursuit of political office by unfair means. So someone who is kind of clawing their way to the top, not for the good of the whole, but just so that he could be in charge, so they could be in power. We already saw this word in Philippians 1 verse 17. When Paul talks about those who were proclaiming Christ which is incredible for us to think about. These are his brothers and sisters uh, in 117. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So uh, somehow, and we, we have to guess what the motives are, uh, brothers in Christ see Paul in prison and they take this opportunity. It's like, we got to get out there now because here's a, a window. We, we can seize an opportunity to either promote our, 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 our flavor of, 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 of Christianity or maybe our faction or maybe just so show, well, we're, we clearly have God's blessing because we're not in prison. So we saw that that same kind of, of selfishness there. So Paul brings this around. It's not just those Roman brothers who are preaching out of selfish ambition in Rome. He says in Philippi, this is a problem too. And so he says to do, so he says to them to do nothing according to selfishness. So what does that look like? What, what does it look like to do nothing from selfishness? It's leveraging a situation to get the best outcome for you. It's advocating for your preference. I remember a brother who confronted me once because he was trying to pick a, 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 a restaurant uh, for a group of people. But then he's like, oh, well, I know Isaiah doesn't like that. I'm like, oh, is that really what we want to be known for? Always kind of pushing our, our agenda, the things that we don't like? Jockeying to accomplish our personal goals, using uh, whatever influence we have to get decisions our way, complaining about others' choices. I uh, played a game of, of Monopoly recently. It was a lot of fun. That's exactly how Monopoly works. You trade, you finagle, you cajole, you promise, you basically use others to accomplish your goals. And that's the selfishness that we're talking about there. I kind of think it's okay inside the game. In real life, though, <laughs> not okay. Now, it's possible that selfishness feels okay to you. Natural, even. 
And it's probably true of all of us that we're not aware of every place it is in our lives. Often it feels like just trying to make the best out of the situation that God, that God has placed us in. Well, if we're here, why, why not enjoy it as much as possible? I remember seeing a movie once with, with some friends, and all of us were seated. Well, one friend thought nothing of asking the whole group to move because they preferred another seat. Like, I like to sit down there, so let's move. That's an example of selfishness. Most of us are sneakier in our selfishness, a little bit more aware of social customs that, 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 that that's an inappropriate thing to do, but still we try to get the best result for us. Paul says to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. If you've got an ESV, it's conceited. It's literally their empty glory. Someone whose view of themselves is disconnected from reality. It's an exaggerated self-evaluation. It's being de- de- uh, uh, de- de- delusional even. You know, it took me a long time to realize that I don't sing well. As I heard myself sing, it sounds great. Maybe some of you have come to that realization as well. I don't sing. I cannot carry a tune. It took me a long time to realize, like in my teen years, like, I really don't sing well. And that's just an example of vainglory in a very small way. Uh, our children experience this, this, this all the time. Because they take one swimming lesson, they're perfectly confident they can swim. Or because they took, you know, soccer lessons like my daughter when she was three, can play soccer now. That's not true. Perhaps you have an inflated view of yourself. Maybe it's of your giftedness, of your maturity, of your wisdom, of your value, your skill, or maybe of your experience. It's actually a very concerning command here, right? How do I know if I'm conceited? How do I know if I'm conceited? Sadly, a conceited person never thinks that they are, right? It's part of the problem. You don't don't see that about yourself. You just think that you're being realistic, even truthful. So we have to ask ourselves, am I one of those people? Am I deluded? Am I deceived about my abilities and skills? Am I asking like James and John did to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Of course, we criticize them. Oh, we would never do that. But in our own ways, do we have that empty conceit? So what are some symptoms of that? I I think I got some questions, and you're not going to be able to write all these down. Am I bitter when others undervalue what seems obvious to me? So when I'm undervalued about something that seems obvious, does that make me bitter? Or maybe am I jealous when others are overvalued in my place? Do I try to get others to appreciate me or to appraise my worth? Do I seek to bring those I'm jealous of, maybe your competition down a notch in people's opinion through slander, gossip, just being honest about them? Do you enjoy when others are brought down, shamed? I think that this is maybe the most telling sign. Do I engage in internal monologues, you know, kind of the ongoing conversation with yourself or maybe with your spouse, of how I deserve to be better treated or to be treated in a different way? Am I quick to discount other people's criticisms or concerns about me? All of these are symptoms of vain conceit 
of the empty conceit, empty glory. So I encourage you to ask the Lord to reveal to you where is that vain glory, that empty conceit in my life? So Paul brings out two problems here. One is of our motivation, selfishness. The other is of our evaluation of empty conceit. Neither have any place in God's people. And Paul makes that really clear here. Uh, I'm I'm, going to read from a commentary and then explain. The double negative and the omission of a verb in the prohibition forcibly draws attention to its absoluteness. So this is what Paul says uh, 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 in the Greek. Basically, nothing selfishness, nothing empty conceit. He makes it super clear. Nothing selfishness, nothing empty conceit. There's not even any verbs there. You get the idea. Nada, zip, none, zero. The commentator says, do nothing from selfishness, selfish ambition or empty conceit is binding on all Christian lives at all times. Both of these are obviously dangerous to unity. See, our desires aren't supposed to dominate dialogue. And our estimate our estimation of ourselves isn't supposed to be a mandate for others. Both of these can lead us to be manipulative of others. How can I get what I want, or how can I get what I deserve from God's people? Now, Paul gives the antidote to this selfishness and empty conceit in the second half of verse 3. And this is where Paul goes from the first what not to do to the first what to do in verse 3. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. The word uh, regard, or in ESV it's count, indicates a determination to view your brothers or sisters in a certain way. It's engaging in an intellectual process. I'm choosing to think, I'm, 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 de- I'm determining to think about you in a certain way. We, we see that same word in James 1, 2, where James, many of you memorize this verse, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Right? That's going to be an act of the will there. Consider it joy when I face trials. That's going to take some work. I'm going to have to make a determination. I'm going to have to engage my mind if I'm going to consider these trials joy. Paul uses the same word in Philippians 3, 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is valuing, he's determining. All of that is the loss as compared to knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. So what Paul's calling us here is a determination, a commitment to view others in a certain way, to consider them, to view them, to reckon them. And he says, as more important than yourselves, or, or, or maybe in your Bible, as more significant than yourselves. The word there, more important, significant, is also translated surpassing. It can mean better than, excelling, exceeding. It's interesting that, uh, in, in fact, it's in the verse I just read in Philippians 3.8. Uh, Paul uses this word. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not just a little bit better value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing value. So that kind of surpassing, that kind of uh, extent, we're supposed to view others as surpassing us. Now, I know that concept is probably challenging to some of you. Now, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's not just because of pride. Some of you are analytical people, right? You're like, okay, I'm supposed to consider, to reckon, to determine that other people are more important than me, that they're better than me. 
that they're surpassing me. And you're thinking, but they don't surpass me. First of all, we're all equal before Christ, right? So first of all, like, I'm going to have to wrap my, my mind around that one. But I know I'm smarter than this person. I serve more than this person. I know more than this person. I'm better with people than this person. I'm more self-aware than this person. Maybe some of you have found yourself in a place in your life where you, where, where you can't think of any person who's better than you. Now, none of us would say this about every area of our life, but just in the evaluative, like, I have a really hard time saying this. You know, sure, Francis is, is really good at some things, but I'm better than him. I'm so, so you start kind of like maybe valuing and weighing, like, well, how do we wrap our minds around this? And that's really what our sinful flesh does. We weigh people's worth and we assign value. So how can we fulfill this command in sincerity? When we know that we're better at some things than, than others. When we know that in every way, people don't exceed or surpass us. Well, the key is obviously in the first part of, of the instruction here. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. The uh, word in Greek comes from two Greek words. One in lowliness and one is mind. Okay? That word mind is the same one we've seen already several times in, 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 in Philippians. It's going to come up many more times. It's a book that's full of thinking. It's the same word that we saw about having, having the same mind and one mind. And so here it is. It's, it's humility of mind. But what is that humility? In the Greek, it was used as a very negative word to refer to the mentality of a slave. Refer to people as slaves as base and unfit, as shabby, of no account. People who are servile or groveling, inferior. So that's how that word was used in the ancient Greek world. But really, in the New Testament, it's transferred into this, into this really beautiful expression. Now, Paul isn't talking about physical or just outward humility here. It's not someone who avoids eye contacts, eye contacts avoids eye contact, who belittles themselves, who scurries to clean something up. We're very thankful for people who clean things up. But I've seen people do that, and really it's because of their self-focus, and, and they want people to notice them. I, I had a brother who confessed that once. See, the aim isn't the posture of our body before men, but the posture of our heart before God. And that's what humility is about. It's the humility of the mind that leads us to count others as more important than ourselves is our response to what God's word reveals about who he is and who we are. That is where real humility comes from. Humility is the result of seeing God exalted and ourselves exposed. This is the humility that Isaiah had when he's taken in that vision to the throne room of God. And then he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That is what humility is. It's to see God exalted and ourselves devastated. That's the same feeling, the same heart of what Peter has in Luke 5.8 after the miraculous catch of fish. When Simon Peter saw that he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. This isn't a calculated move to show humility. This is all the heart can do. You've got to get away from me, Jesus. I can't be here. 
Paul had that same kind of experience on the road to Damascus when he saw Jesus, and his life was transformed from that. I really, I really enjoy these verses about Paul because I think it gives us a key into what humility is. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Ephesians 3, 8, To me, the very least of all saints, Isn't that incredible? Paul being called, he saw himself as the least of all saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That I'm the least of the saints. Can you say that? I'm the least of the saints. And it's not time to like get your little like like holiness uh, gauge going and skills gauge and wisdom gauge. And like, I'm pretty sure that they are lower than me and the least of the saints. 1 Timothy 1.15 Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That is what humility is, right? I am the chief of sinners. I am foremost of all. I am the least of all saints, the least of the apostles. Uh, Famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and it's a little bit longer quote, but I think it's worth it. There's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. When I see that I am a sinner or feel lost or condemned or helpless and that nothing but the Son of God and the cross can save me, I am humble to the dust. I say that no one can be worse than I am. I am the chief of sinners, and anyone must be better than I am. But it is only the cross that makes me feel that. This is what I believe is this humility of mind that leads us to regard one another as more important than ourselves. It is not some some logical game. It is not some evaluation. It is being before the cross and being, I deserve to be there. Of course I'm going to serve my brothers and sisters. Of course they're better than me. I see me exposed. This is, this is gross. I need a savior. And that's what real humility is. That drives us to pour ourselves out for our brothers and sisters. When we come away from seeing God in his word, when we come away from seeing Christ on the cross, when we come away from seeing ourselves as sinners, as God's law declares that we are, we can say like, Martin Lloyd-Jones did. Anyone must be better than I am. Jesus, the perfect son of God, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How much more must we, with our history as rebels and traitors, serve our brothers and sisters? See, when we appreciate Jesus on the cross, when we really get what happened there, the Son of God taking the wrath of God for sinners like us, we will consider others more important than ourselves. It won't be a question that we're asking. We'll just be like, just point me to serve, Lord. I get to serve you? This is how we cultivate unity, by doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. And then Paul brings us to another what not to do in verse 4. This this is our third uh, there. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest. 
or in the ESV. Let each of you look not only to his own interest. Now, what's really interesting here, both the ESV and the New American Standard has that. The word merely or the word only is added. Okay? That's not what Paul has there. Paul intentionally begins with something more shocking. He begins with a bold statement. He says, do not look out for your own personal interest. Don't fix your attention on it. Don't watch out for your back. Don't be focused on your interest. Your focus, your attention can't be on your preferences. It can't be on your desires. It can't be on what's good for you, on your needs being met, on achieving your personal goals. Now, I imagine that many of you would be repulsed by the idea of coming to church, expecting to get everything just the way that you want. Now, sure, you, you, you might prefer a different song be sung in a different way. You might prefer some different snacks, although I can't believe that with all the different options there. There's even veggie sticks, uh, or whatever those things are. Uh, you, 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 you might have a different pre- preference for how we do children's ministry here at Roots. You might have a different preference, but from what I know of you is you come thankful. I, I, I don't hear you as a complaining people. But notice, though, Paul doesn't limit this instruction about looking out for your own personal interest to church. We are called to obey this command always, not just when we're assembled. This command extends to all of life. Your life must not center around your things or what's to your advantage or what interests you. The resources that God gives, your time and your money, your weekends and your nights, are not for achieving your best life now, or the ideal version of yourself, or an ideal family. You are instructed not to focus on your interests. Don't look at your good. So let's try to get practical here. Let's, let's talk about when does a hobby become focusing on our own things? Right? When does a hobby become focusing on our own things? When does the pursuit of the perfect cup of coffee, and I enjoy coffee a lot, the ideal man cave, the exotic vacation, the next smartphone, the best reviewed on Yelp sushi, the perfect hook shot become disobedience to this command? When do those things become sin? Well, I think it's about our, our focus here. Is your, it says, do not look out for your own personal interests. Do not pay attention to them. Do not become obsessed with them. Don't give, don't, don't, don't look at those things. Don't make that your focus. So is your effort, is your attention, is your focus a demonstration of a heart focused on its own things, on its own interest? leads us quickly to number four and what to do. And really, I think what not to do has become more clear when we look at what to do. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Instead, and this is, and this is really the real tell, we know a cup of coffee is a blessing. I'm thankful for that cup of coffee. I'm thankful for, for a good cup of coffee. But am I looking out for the interest of others? Is my attention fixed on what is good for you all? Is that what, why I wake up, really? 
Is that my purpose? Is that your purpose for one another? See, church just isn't where our lives interconnect with one another on Sunday morning, then again at care group, and then again on Sunday morning, and then again in care group. That's maybe when we're physically in one another's presence, and hopefully that's only some of the time. But, 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 but our, our pursuit, our focus is each other's good. Others benefit. So the question is how you can use the resources that God has given you, the gifts that God has given you to fulfill his commands in the service and the care and the growth of your brothers and sisters. Now, Paul exemplified this, right? Uh, he's kind of in this uh, choosing between life and death. Not that he's going to choose death, but he's like, wow, it's really hard. I, I, I'm kind of on death row here to, be, to, to die and be with Christ is incredible. But it's better for me to say, so verses, Philippians 1, verse 22 to 24. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that's very much better, yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. That's why you are here today. It is more necessary for the whole that you are here. That's where your attention is supposed to be. That's where your interest and your focus is supposed to be, is on how can I serve the body? So when it comes time for you high school and college students to pick a a career, for families, you're looking at buying a house and you're choosing a neighborhood. When it comes time, not this Monday, but the following Monday, to choose a care group. When you're planning your summer, what place does the interest, the good of others, come into that plan? So when we talk about hobbies, does that refresh you or does that sap your strength? Are you too exhausted pursuing your own interests that you are uninterested in your brothers' and sisters' welfare? Now, Paul is not ultimately rejecting attention to our interests. And I do think that all of that first half of the verse, he says it bold. He doesn't say, do not merely look out for your interests. He says, don't look out for your own personal interests. But also... Because he knows that we do need to look out for our interests in a sense. God made us people who care for ourselves, right? The command is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God knows we need to care for ourselves. The command of husbands in Ephesians 5, 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. God knows that we're going to care for ourselves. Failing to care for ourselves doesn't make us more useful to the body. We need to work. We need to sleep. We need to bathe. I hope you do that. We need to mow our grass and pay our bills and manage our house as well. First Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than, worse than an, an unbeliever. God's word is clear. We need, to, we need to take care of our families. We need to take care of ourselves. And I think that that's why Paul includes, but also, he knows that we're going to be concerned about ourselves, that that can be a healthy and a good and a well-balanced thing. But we must not do those things that we need to do in a way that marginalizes, in a way that neglects, in a way that negates God's command for us to be all into the welfare of our brothers and sisters. It's a matter of motivation here. Is your question, what's good for me? Or is your question, what's good for you? What's good for me or what's good for you? Paul says the same thing in other really hard, bold verses. 
1 Corinthians 13.5 says, and we know this passage in love, love does not seek its own. It will not be consumed with its stuff, with its pleasure, with its comfort. That's not love. 1 Corinthians 10.24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. I don't know, perhaps, perhaps, and I don't know, this command may be more difficult in a world where there's so much freedom, right? And we have a lot of freedom. Many of you have some freedom of time. You have some freedom of finances. There's so many opportunities to please ourselves. So what's driving your expenditures of time and money and attention? Is it your pleasure, your comfort, your security, your advancement, your promotion, or is it the good of others? Command simple. Do not merely, and I don't, even, I don't want to put the word in there, do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, but even for the interests of, of others. Have a different focus. Now, I think for those of us who are parents, this becomes an even more difficult choice. Now, I'm not saying like the inside sin is more difficult for parents than non-parents. We all have that same battle. But, There's so many good things we can choose for our kids, right? Kids can learn good things from athletics and sports. They can learn good things from being involved in arts. This can be good for them, academics and excelling at school. Organic food could be good for them. We're still figuring that one out. There's so many enriching experiences for them. There's museums and arboretums and aquariums and all. I don't know if there are arboretums down here, but it's kind of dry. But there's so many amazingly good experiences for them. You can just lavish your kids with so many good things. You can line up the good things. It can be nonstop, good, justifiable things for your kids. And isn't that fulfilling this verse? Do not merely look out for your own personal interest. You're like, I don't want to go to another sports game, but it's good for my kids. It says also the interests of others. Now, I, I have to say that this section here is about the body of Christ. This section here is about the body of Christ. It's about doing what's good, not just for our family, but for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And what's awesome about our good Lord is that he knows what's good for your kids, right? And what's good for your kids is to be obeying wholeheartedly this command. It is in your child's best interest to see you obeying this command to be devoted to the interests of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is your child's best good, is to see you all out for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let them grow up seeing you extended and and spent again and again for your brothers and sisters. You will do a terrible disservice to your kids' parents. Not your kids' parents, to your kids' parents, if you exalt their accomplishments and their experiences over your obedience to seek the interests of others, no worse choice you can make. So I've got a couple more questions here. Let me ask, how have you been seeking the good of your brothers and sisters? Have you been practicing hospitality, whether in your home or maybe you're like, I don't have a great situation for that. Are, 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 if you can, if you got the financial freedom, do you, do you take people out? Do you show them love? Are you being zealous for good works? I know that, that this is something that I think that really typifies our church. If there's a need, we all, I think, rally together to help. Are you serving in a ministry? 
And if you serve in a ministry, are you working hard to make that ministry as good as possible? Are you putting energy to make that ministry thrive? Are you being devoted in prayer for your brothers and sisters in Christ? What what a simple way you can do at any place to be pursuing others, good others' welfare by being devoted to them, by praying for them. Do you send encouraging notes and emails and texts? 1 Thessalonians 5.14 describes this. We urge you, brethren, this is is not just to the leadership, to the church. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Do whatever's for their good. And that's going to require us to speak truth into their lives. Be speaking truth into one another's lives. Be devoted to their interests. So our natural attendance Our tendency is to get what we want that is so strong. Paul has to say, don't pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to one another. It leads us to our last what to do. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, it's, it's almost like Paul knows that these commands are going to lead to some questions. Right? He's making some bold statements here. And he knows that we're going to, he's going to get some, some questions. So, uh, Paul, is it okay? I've got some, some spending money aside. Is it okay for me to get the pour over, over the drip coffee? I'm, I'm kind of confused here. How, how, how big do I go with this interest of others over my own? If you don't know, that's more expensive, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, how, like, how far do I go with this? Is it okay to go home and watch the Seahawks? I was going to say beat the Packers, but I, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> So Paul plays his ace here. In a sense, he silences discussion, and, 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 and he exposes that we still don't get it. We're asking the wrong question. He blows us away. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Again, th- that word attitude, that mindset, that way of thinking, have this mind among yourselves. And so what, what he's talking about there, have this attitude, that this refers to what he just described. Everything that I just told, have this mindset. That is going to be a huge part of us having the same mind. He called us to in verse 2, that unity. Have this mindset I just described in verses 3 and 4. And you've seen it before. He doesn't say you've seen it in me. You've seen it in Christ Jesus. Have this same mindset, which in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And, and honestly, it is different from, 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 from different New, New American standards and different from the ESV. There's a couple different ways to translate this. Uh, some say, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Uh, some say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right? Like, 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 like this is your mindset in Christ Jesus. I think it's better to to go with the New American Standard here. Have this attitude in yourselves, in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ is the supreme example of this attitude. If you want to know how to do this, look to Jesus Christ. Jesus did nothing from selfishness. He had no empty conceit. And really what we see in verses 6 through 11, I read through it once. I I, I, I want to spend in the future uh, uh, a whole sermon, at least one, verses 6 through 11, because it's so rich. But Jesus did nothing from selfishness. He had no empty conceit. Though he was the greatest, he was humble. Verse 8 says he uh, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus always regarded others as more important than himself. 
In Scripture, we never see Jesus once looking to his own personal interest. He never says, wait, disciples, I need some me time. Now, he does get alone and pray because he needs to. And it is good for them. It's just this unified life where, where humility before God is expressed in interest for others. We see this again and again in Scripture about our dear Lord, Matthew 20, 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Romans 15, verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Loved you and gave himself up for us. John 13, 5 is the sweet picture of Jesus there. I think, you know, I don't know if it's the sweetest besides the cross, but how sweet it is. He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So sure, we can ask, and there's lots of good questions. Can I do this, or should I do this, or is it okay to? And we can have good dialogue about that. But the example of Jesus Christ reveals that so many of those questions are missing the point of what this mind, of what this attitude looks like. Right? I mean, it really is. I mean, it's just, it's just like, like, well, those are just weeds, and there's the glory of the sun. It's so small. And we, we can spend our time, yeah, this Netflix show or not, you're like, you've called, been called to something so much bigger, to the same attitude that Jesus had. So Jesus was so different. There was, there's never how much can I carve out for me and still be okay. Always pouring himself out. So when we exemplify this attitude that Jesus had, and this is a humbling passage, right? It's good. You know, we need to be humble. This is a humbling passage. When we exemplify this attitude that Jesus had, we will be of the same mind. We will be maintaining the same love. We will be united in spirit and intent on one purpose. See, but Jesus here is more than an example, right? He's more than an example for us. He is also the means through which that we can become like him. Jesus is not dead. He just did not die on the cross to take the wrath of sins. He was exalted. He was, he was exalted for our future glorification. He was exalted for our sanctification. He, Peter already talked, Paul already talked about our, the participation of our spirit, uh, participation in God's spirit, our union with Christ through his spirit. We have supernatural resources to do this, to have the mind of Christ become our mind. We need to be humble and dependent and say, Lord, transform me to be like your son. I want to cultivate this unity. I want to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want us all to do that together so that Christ is glorified and exalted and lifted up. So that everyone can say, this gospel is amazing. I wouldn't do anything to shame this gospel. And that's what Paul's calling us here to, to live worthy, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we see how essential that is, that we have unity as we do what he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, there's a sweetness here in this verse. Lord, we question how we became humble, and it was by seeing you exalted, by seeing your son exalted. That's exactly where Paul's going to take us, is to see Jesus humbling himself, becoming obedient to the death, even death on the cross, taking on that form of a slave. Father, there is hope in the exalted Christ, and we confess, Lord, that we need that hope. We just don't want to leave here convicted, Lord. We don't want just to leave with a, yeah, I need to be less selfish, Lord. Father, we want to leave by your grace committed to changing through the strength which you supply. We want to have that mind of Christ Jesus towards one another. And we are needy and we are dependent, Lord, and we can't do this uh, by ourselves. And yet you call us to do it. The, The command here is so strong to see others as surpassing us, to not do anything from from, from selfishness, to not have a a big-headedness, a bloatedness in our thinking about ourselves. Lord, we are, we are needy. We, 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 are, we, are, we are such selfish people apart from you. And we need this grace from you. So we pray for your glory, for the unity of the body, for the revelation of the worthiness of the gospel. Make us like your son. Lord, make us like your son. Help us to be devoted for the good of one another. Lord, I didn't want to, and I don't want to, and I ask that I, I, I wasn't convicting people of things you weren't convicting them of. Lord, there's, there's, there's all, these, these, all these freedom choices we have. We have so much freedom often here in America, Lord. Father, I just don't want us to be consumed with these things. I want us to be consumed with being like Christ. I want us to be outpoured for your glory for the, in, in the lives of one another, Lord. Help us to have a different calendar, different agenda, a, a different passion, a different attention. Uh, help us to be in one another's lives as much as we can be. And, 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 and not just to, to, to limit that to what we have to do, Lord. Uh, help us to be all out for the good of one another, uh, for the glory of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.